Good to see you tonight. We have quite a few of our folks who are attending a Bible conference service over at the campus of Bob Jones University this evening. And uh, of course, our pastor uh, is, is not here. He's, um, please continue to pray for him. We were able to have a couple of Zoom meetings yesterday among our staff, so he did participate in those, but we do really want him back in person, and so trust that the Lord will strengthen him even tonight. I invite you to turn in your Bible with me for time in Scripture in preparation for prayer to Genesis chapter 3. Last month, we began a a short series on the matter of temptation, and I didn't bring any slides tonight, but you may recall from last week, we are being helped in this study by one of the Puritan pastors and theologians, John Owen, and his shorter book, Temptation that he published when he was a dean at Oxford University. And the New Testament text which he frames his study around uh, is Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying that you enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we're considering how to do that, how to watch and pray that we not enter into temptation. And we began that uh, last month by looking at the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer by our Lord, given by our Lord, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. And we've considered how that does not mean that we will never again be tempted or even tried. The Lord does bring us into trials to show us who we are, to show us who He is. And uh, He sees fit sovereignly in His providence sometimes to allow us to enter into temptation. The kind of trials that Satan twists to his own devious purposes. And, of course, we know that from Scripture itself because of the experiences of uh, various saints like Job and even our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He was on earth. And so, we really just want to bring ourselves back again to this focus that, that we are Reminding ourselves of these things, not simply so that we have a theoretical theology of temptation, but so that we really are spurred, spiritually stimulated to pray for one another. That we not enter into temptation, that the Lord would deliver us from evil. We've talked about how we have to do that in faith, how we have to do that as an enemy of sin, taking a side against that temptation, and for rescue. 
Now, how do we stay watchful about temptation? Well, that's what we spent our time considering last week. We tried to uh, bring temptation under the microscope and scrutinize it. Or, we had another analogy, gathering ourselves in a a beautiful reading room, it might as well be beautiful if we're going to spend time in there, and grabbing, each of us grabbing this portion of Scripture off the shelf and sitting down with people like John Owen, we referred to Thomas Boston last week as well, and working through very carefully these portions of Scripture and having them guide us. And you know, we might say, well, wouldn't it be better if we just didn't pay attention to temptation? <laughs> uh, we are supposed to flee it, right? And we absolutely are. But we're doing this because Scripture here, especially in Genesis 3, uh, wants us to see temptation in action. It's, it's like these freeze frames, one after another, that, that slowly works through, we don't know how long this actual event um, uh, transpired, how long it took, but, but really to examine it, because in that, the Lord helps us to be watchful. And Owen reminded us that we can't just, um, we, we can't just say we don't like the fruit when we're abiding by and sort of protecting and spending way too much time with the root. We have to go at the root, the temptation, first and foremost. And that's what we're trying to do. Now, how, how does temptation prevail? We spent time looking at what it is and then how it prevails. And here in Genesis 3, we noted last week four indicators that Adam and Eve had entered into temptation. We spent most of our time on the first two, the first one being that they entered into a deceptive dialogue where the tempter uh, was carrying out a character assassination of God and undermining the trustworthiness of God's words. So if we find ourselves contemplating and in dialogue, even with our own thoughts, in a way that is leading us to doubt God's character and is undermining the veracity of God's words, we clearly have entered into this sphere of temptation. That's one. The second point that we spent time on last week was their consideration of an offer of false freedom, of an autonomy to become like God by displacing Him and placing themselves in the position where they were determining how good and evil worked and and really what was good and evil. So if we find ourselves not trusting God to determine what is good and evil and remapping that somehow in our minds, we've we've entered into the sphere of temptation. And then we mentioned just briefly two more indicators. A third one would be an abdication of responsibility. And here we're referring specifically to Adam. This is 
you might say latent in the text, but it's very clear from verse 6 that he was with Eve as she's being tempted. God had given the command to Adam. Adam was the head of that home, uh, as well as the head of the whole human race. Adam should have stepped up, and he did not. And so we do sometimes, don't we? we? We find ourselves in a situation where it seems easier, it seems maybe acceptable to sort of sidestep, let someone else take the responsibility. Ho- hopefully the problem will go away. Well, if, if we're finding ourselves in those kinds of thoughts, we've entered into the sphere of temptation. And there was a fourth that we mentioned just in, in closing, really, of making a choice that is based on what is superficial, what is, what is sensory, what is material, over that which is spiritual. This, of course, is not to pit the material against the, the non-material, as, as if uh, God did not make them both. Okay. But the point is that Eve saw that this fruit was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, but she did something with that sight. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this before we move on tonight. If you look at chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree, then notice this wording, every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Those are two of the three descriptions that are used again in Genesis 3, when noting the, the draw, the lure that, that Eve is giving into. So the simple point here would be that these sensory impressions, that this was good, that it was delightful to the eyes, um, uh, those aren't in and of themselves evil. Okay. This good and delightful desirability of, of, of fruit was God's design. But But Eve, and and evidently Adam as well with her, had concluded that this fruit was desirable to what end? Back to chapter 3, verse 6. It was good for food, delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. And we see here Eve buying into the interpretation of what she saw that Satan had presented. Um, this word desirable is not an innately evil term, okay? Um, in, in fact, it's used in Psalm 19.10 to describe how God's words are more desirable than gold, okay? So, the, the, problem, the problem was not that God had made something wrongly, Okay? It's not God's fault that this fruit is, is good, delightful, pleasing to the sight. But the, the problem, again, is their, their interpretation. What, what really is the treasure? The, the desirability is a, is, a, is a treasured thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasurable thing. And their understanding of what made it pleasurable, what would make it treasure, is if they took it for themselves against God's Word. Again, defining what is good and evil for themselves. And 
trying to become like God in a way that Satan presented instead of being the image bearers of God that God had created them to be. Now, before we move on, and I mentioned at the end last week, tried to give some encouragement that we would move on to ways to prevent temptation that might seem a little more encouraging. Okay. But I really feel compelled before we move on to note, uh, note a little bit more from this passage here in Genesis 3. I think it would be helpful for us to track the plight of Adam and Eve after they fall to this temptation. Because there is a second phase here that seems to be an additional window for us into how we struggle with temptation. Because so often our struggle with temptation is not just an initial skirmish that inflicts a wound, but it actually is what we do about that wound after we've sustained it. We all know that the battle against sin is, is actually a war. It's a series of battles. And so we find here in Adam and Eve's response to their conscience, their guilty conscience, and to God's direct confrontation, we find that their reactions to that are such that they're going to be repeated billions of times in the history of the world since, and probably in your life and mine in the not-too-distant past. There are three interrelated aspects of, of, of this reaction that show us that they have not only entered into temptation, but they're, but they're staying there, and that now they're not responding to that fall to temptation in a good way. Uh, Owen, I mentioned this I think almost in passing last week, Owen describes the powers of temptation under two headings. He says, sometimes temptation allures us, okay, it seduces us, and sometimes temptation affrights us. We don't use that term much, uh, but it, 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 it scares us. We see here, I think, in these reactions to their falling into temptation, we, we see now a, a fear, a response of, of fear. Temptation is, is still at work. And what are these three? Well, you've studied this. The, the first of these we find in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The first of these interrelated aspects of their reaction, sort of this second stage of falling into temptation, is a self-defense, right? They, their eyes were open, their conscience was made alive to their guilt, they knew themselves no longer to be innocent, and so they made a covering for themselves. And if we have any conscience at all about our sin, we, we look for a covering, right? 
God designed us to instinctively fend for ourselves physically. It is, it is unnatural not to put up your defenses to protect yourself. It is also unnatural not to have some sense that there needs to be a, a defense, a, a covering, there needs to be some kind of remedy when things have gone wrong in our soul. God gave us this conscience, of course. We want things to be right. Our conscience tells us things should be right, and they're not. It accuses us, Paul tells us in Romans 2. And so we have an unsettled conscience. We considered this this past Lord's Day what Moses did. He he rose up and struck an Egyptian and killed him. And then what did he do? What did he do? He, He hit him. And then when that was found out, when it was clear there were eyewitnesses to his murderous deed, then he, then he fled. Achan hid the loot that he had grabbed from Jericho. Very infamously, David compounded his sin with a complex series of attempts to hide what he had done with Bathsheba. You see, when we are in temptation and now we're getting entangled in that temptation, one of Satan's devices is to lead us to try to find a defense, a covering for ourselves in our own strength, according to our own wisdom. This is, this is all they could do. It's all they could find. They were hoping it would be enough. They attempted, you could say, to find a homemade remedy. And it would be like being in one of these places uh, where you need to escape and you think you find a tunnel out, but that tunnel actually leads you deeper into that dungeon. And so there there is a self-defense a concealment of transgressions. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions, what? Will not prosper. He cannot prosper. These coverings could not be enough. And that leads to a second interrelated aspect of this reaction to their fall to temptation, and that's in verses 8 through 10. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let me just pause there. The Lord God walked with them. He made Adam and Eve to walk with Him. You think of the description of of some of the, the, the people, the faithful people in the Bible who walked with God. Well, they were doing Enoch, Abraham. They're doing what God created us to do to walk with Him. And so God comes to walk with them. And what do they do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. He was ashamed. He knew he was not innocent. He was guilty. You see, Adam and Eve knew right away 
that those, those fig leaves weren't really covering them, that, that they could not truly cover their guilt and shame from God's view. And so, another temptation is, is to find ourselves withdrawing from God. It's part of the self-defense, but, but it's an interrelated secondary aspect, not just covering for ourselves, finding some sort of self-remedy, but, but also withdrawing from God. We back away from Him instead of coming to Him. We, we put down our Bible. We lose motivation to be involved in ministry. We withdraw from Christian fellowship. We may even stop coming to services like this. Understandably, we, we don't feel right in God's presence. We are guilty. But, but the answer is not to shrink back from His presence. We could picture it perhaps this way. It, it's like being wounded or sustaining an injury or knowing something is desperately wrong in your, in your physical being. And instead of going to someone for help, going to the hospital, going to your general practitioner, going to somebody whom you know can, can help, uh, will offer to help you, it's, it, it's like shrinking away because we're afraid maybe of the process, we're afraid of the prognosis, we're perhaps afraid of the remedy. And so, yes, we know we're wounded, we know we're sick, we know something's not right, but instead of moving toward the help, we shrink back away from it. You see, Adam and Eve are displaying that they are more and more entangled in this temptation. And we find a third interrelated aspect of their reaction, their entangling reaction to falling to the initial temptation. We find that in verses 11 through 13. They come up with a self-defense. They withdraw. And then, of course, they shift the blame. The Lord says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, The woman whom you gave... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the the serpent deceived me, and I ate. We're familiar with this. As the Lord pinpoints the transgression, Adam points away to others. He's so entangled at this point that he actually blames God for his sin. The woman that that you gave me, this helper who is perfectly complementary to Adam that the Lord provided, she's the one that he feels like is to blame, and therefore, ultimately, God is to blame because God created her. And Adam blamed his wife, who certainly had sinned. 
But, but she did not sin alone. We've, we've talked about this again tonight. He was there. And that was certainly part of the tragedy. And Eve deflects the responsibility too. She, she identifies this serpentine culprit. It was the serpent. And again, that's, that was true. Eve did give the fruit to Adam. The serpent did tempt Eve. Satan was terribly at fault. But the Lord had not come to Adam and Eve to figure out what had happened. He came to deal with their souls. He was visiting Adam and Eve to address their entanglement in sin. And so the the first step in being delivered from evil is a step down. The first step up in being delivered from evil is a step down. It's a step in taking humble responsibility. It's what James 4, 6-10 through teaches. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God. Mourn and weep. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. So, so this is a series of unfolding indications that Adam and Eve not only are being tempted, but they have entered into a sphere of temptation and they are not able to get out. Certainly not in the way they attempted. So that leads us finally then to the third portion of Owen's consideration. And this is actually by far the lengthiest part. Um, I don't know if I should say by far. It clearly is the lengthiest part of this book. He spends very little time on what temptation is. He spends a longer time on how it prevails. And the longest time on preventing it. And I'm just going to draw here and there. I'm not following his outline necessarily. How do we prevent entrance into temptation? Knowing that the Lord is sovereign over all this. Well, we need to start at the very simplest level because it's really the basics that win the day. And that is we we have to start with prayer. Be watching and praying. So we've thought about the sixth petition, but, but part of preventing our entrance into temptation is actually to live a prayerful life. And, and to really highlight this for us, we want to turn back to the Gospel of Matthew here toward the end of our time tonight. If you turn with me to Matthew 4. More than once in December, we sang these words. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. What would it be like to put off the first Adam's likeness 
to efface it, in Wesley's words, and what would it be like to put on the last Adam's likeness, or to have it, in Wesley's words, stamped in that place? And specifically, what would it mean in relation to temptation? Both of these Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam, faced great temptations, monumental temptations that actually had ramifications for all of mankind and all of history. Well, we've just left Genesis 3, and I, I think we can safely assume that Adam did not turn to fellowship with the Lord in his hour of temptation. But let's notice here what Jesus does. Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The Spirit deliberately leads Jesus into the sphere of temptation. That, for these moments, for these 40 days, was his Father's will. This is, of course, at the outset of his ministry. He's just been baptized. This is how his ministry begins. It begins with 40 days of temptation. And we know that he was very hungry when the tempter comes with the first of these three climactic temptations. We're told in Luke that that actually this temptation, the, the language indicates that it's been going on throughout those 40 days. And as these three climactic temptations that are highlighted here in Matthew as well as Luke, as these arise, we we see that there's a direct connection, right, between his hunger and the first of the temptations that Satan brings about turning stones into bread. But for a moment, let's think about what Jesus had been doing for 40 days. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And I think it would be easy, in fact, I I think this is what I have kind of implicitly assumed for a long time, that the point of that is that it leads Jesus to be pretty weak, very weak, and therefore it, it kind of highlights the extraordinary nature of His perfect response to temptation. And it certainly does. But Jesus is fasting. Why is He fasting? In order to pray. Jesus is fasting and praying. He's engaging in spiritual warfare. He's not just fasting so that He would be weak when this temptation came along. He's fasting because He is being delivered from evil. The Lord Jesus Christ responded to temptation in a very difficult circumstance with prayer. And so, it should not surprise us that the Lord says in Luke 18 that that we at all times should pray and not faint. That the Apostle Paul uh, expands on this in 
that passage on gospel weaponry in Ephesians 6 and says, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit. The way our our hymn has captured that is uh, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. And it should be no surprise then that what our Lord intends for us to do when we are facing temptation, whether it's in that first onslaught or whether we have fallen and, and now we are getting entangled, whichever phase we find ourselves in, the Lord intends for us to pray. And I want us to look at one more passage that really highlights this in such dramatic color. It, it is so encouraging. And that would be in Hebrews chapter 4. If you turn with me there, and we'll end our time by briefly looking at these verses at the end of Hebrews 4. I think it would be helpful for us to notice a connection. This is one of those places where there's a seam. If you look up commentaries on Hebrews or you study through it, series of sermons, um, anyone is going to point out that there's a a major seam. There are two things coming together. There's a a change, you might say, a, a, a new segment of the letter here at the end of Hebrews 4. But we would be remiss if we didn't notice how the two pieces of fabric were woven together. Okay, yeah, it's a seam, but it's not a torn seam. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 12. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if the implication of that was not clear enough already, verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Can't you just see Adam and Eve in verse 13? When the Lord comes and He says, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree? Every creature laid open, laid bare before the eyes with him, of Him with whom we have to do. But notice the thread. Verse 14. Therefore. Therefore. The connection here between these two parts of the passage is is not a concession. 
It, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say, come to a great high priest who has been tempted in all points like you are and yet without sin, and draw near and come to a throne of grace where there's mercy and help in time of need. It doesn't say, you do that even though you really know you're guilty before God. We'll let you come but, but it's really a concession because you know how guilty you are. Now that is true. We're absolutely guilty, but that's not the connection. The connection is a reason. It's an argument. The writer here says, know that this word is living and active and it pierces down to the depths of your soul and realize we are all laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We are absolutely vulnerable and open before this holy God. Therefore, therefore come to this throne of grace. Therefore come to this great high priest. Our Lord says to us, are you being tempted? Are you in sin? Are you entangled? Come to the throne of grace. Don't shrink back. Don't shift the blame. Don't put up your own covering. Come to the throne of grace. That's the message. There's much good counsel for us of course, the Bible is teeming with it, and we'll, Lord willing, with probably just one more message, consider more of that next time. But, but this, this is where we want to put our focus here tonight. That God has given us a provision for when we find ourselves in temptation. And that is a great high priest and an entrance into His throne of grace as we come and confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that even as we go to prayer tonight, that You might embolden us we are so weak in and of ourselves, but we pray that you would embolden us to pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters for our own needs in such a way that would be believing in your Son, the great High Priest. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would cleanse us and you would break us free, that you might be glorified by our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.